please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a round of, of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the January-February 2022 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. And you can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit, or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.com/publications/allergywatch. And also make sure you check out the ACAAI community on Doc Matter, where we can continue the discussion about today's articles. Well, hello again. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University, an assistant editor of Allergy Watch, and the co-host of Allergy Talk. And today, I'm once again joined by Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, everybody, and I'm glad to be here. I'm the editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. I'm a past president of the college, and I'm in private practice here in Atlanta, in Atlanta Allergy and Asthma. And for the third chair, we once again are joined by Dr. Anthony Montanaro from Oregon Health and Science University. Tony, welcome back to Allergy Talk. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Stan. Happy to be here. Okay, well, I think we had a great discussion the last episode, and Tony, I think you have another interesting article of us about us trying to make sure we are not missing patients with inborn errors immunity. So what have we learned about this? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. I selected this article not because it has a lot of sex appeal. Let's acknowledge that most practicing allergists practice big A, what we used to say in the board, big A, little I, and a lot of allergists don't like having big I thrown in their face. But I think this is important because there have been some changes, and it gives us a new construct to kind of think about immunodeficiency. So the title of the article is Initial Presentation of Inborn Errors of Immunity. As you know, this is a newly proposed term for primary immunodeficiency disorders, which has been introduced really only about the last year and a half. Remember that there are a number of primary immunodeficiency disorders are now inborn errors of immunity, and the number is almost 500. It wasn't that long ago that we were astonished there were almost 100. But as we have started to unfold the genotype of, of these patients, we're able to uncover a lot more specific disorders. So this article is from the European Society of Immunodeficiencies, the ESID. This group has been very active for decades. And I would have to say, and I know the stands been very active in the WAO, but the Europeans have really been the leaders in the world for immunodeficiency for a long time. And this is just another example of that. So these authors from throughout Europe and the UK undertook a, re a review of the ESAID database, and they looked at over 16,000 patients. So this is a really amazing database of patients with inborn errors of immunity. And they looked at these patients who had been enrolled up to 2019. And what they found in these over 16,000 patients is that indeed the majority of patients with inborn errors present with recurrent infection, about 77%. But about 18% present with immune dysregulation, another 12% with syndromic features, and fortunately less than 1% with malignancy. Even though we've kind of always taught 
and been reminded that malignancy is one of the three legs of the three-legged stool of primary immunodeficiency. It's fortunately a very rare one. About 4% were diagnosed on the basis of lab abnormalities. Only 1.5% were diagnosed based on family history. Important to remember that two-thirds of these patients present at less than six years of age, and a third present in the first year of life. But I think it's also important to remind us that the that immunodeficiency or an inborn error of immunity can present really at any time. And 25% of these 16,500 patients actually presented in adulthood. So we've known for decades that it's more frequent for males to present up to the age of 10, but it's more frequent for females to present after 40. The authors conclude that, remember, that 25% of all patients with inborn errors, inborn errors of immunity present with either autoimmunity or autoinflammatory signs, syndromic signs, or malignancy. So with those three things present 25% of the time. And the findings really support efforts at early recognition of IEI. And in his comments, again, our Dr. Lee reminds us that early recognition can lead to prevention of long-term complications and early death. And also, Dr. Lee reminded of something that they brought up in the body of the paper, and that is the use of mnemonics, which I'm a big fan myself, and I'll share one with that I use. But the two that actually I was unaware of beforehand for someone who's a mnemonic guy, one is Elvis. The E is exciting pathogen. L is localization. V is variation of the usual course of an infection. I is intensity. And S is the sum of infections. So this, I would say, would be an infection-based mnemonic, but it's cool anyway to talk about Elvis. The other is Garfield. And the G is granuloma, A is autoimmunity, RF is recurrent fever, E is eczema, L is lymphoproliferation, and D is diarrhea. The one that I use with our trainees is IAM, and now I've added S, but IM. So I is infection, and we kind of obviously point out that unusual location, I always talk about my patient that presented with a pontine abscess said, you know, when things happen where they shouldn't happen, like having an abscess in your pons, something's not right. And non-response to therapy. And then the A is autoimmunity, autoinflammatory disorders, and the M is malignancy or lymphoproliferation. And then I think I'm going to add the S. My new mnemonic now is IMS, which is what I used to feed my dog, but IMS, <laughs> the syndrome of presentation. So I think this is a very important paper because we've had very few additions to the literature where we were able to look at 16,000 patients that have been so well characterized. This ESAID, ESID database is really a phenomenal database. And it really reminds us and guides us in terms of how important the new emerging field of genotyping these patients is. And I guess one of the questions that I'd throw out to both of you is, should we be genotyping all patients now that you can do an invitae genotyping for $250? You get 288 genes for $250. So it's hard to argue against it, I think. Even though that the small minority will present with diseases that have directed therapy. I mean, we're, 
we kind of say, well, that allows us to do directed therapy. Well, does it really? If you take out CTLA, you take out chronic granulomatous disease, and maybe two or three others, most of them don't have specific therapy. And we use a lot of nonspecific therapy in immunoglobulin. But in terms of the availability of specific either gene replacement therapy or monoclonal antibody therapy, there are very few opportunities. But So I remember going to talk by Jordan Orange, and I forget what paper he cited. Tony, you may know this one, where if a allergist immunologist felt that genetic testing was indicated and ordered the test, they had a hit rate of 25%. And I forget the citation, but that's pretty good, I think, that by your clinical judgment, you think that this fits the pattern and you feel that testing is indicated, you probably should. And clearly, as you mentioned, now that the cost is precipitously, I think we now are better recognizing the clinical syndrome. And you know, we're not going to do this for just like a runny nose or that sort of thing. We're going to recognize when something, as you're stating, is outside what we think is the parameters that are appropriate for a normal immune response. And I think as we have gotten more studies and like this that alerts us to those symptoms, I think we are able to figure out not universal testing per se, but identifying patients with have a high pretest probability because it sounds like we're really good at finding them. Yeah, I think one of the things about Jordan's article was that most of those patients who were identified had enzymatic abnormalities associated with CVID, which is the most common thing that, that we see, uh, and probably doesn't change the course of treatment as well. But I think it informs our treatment, and I think it informs the, both the, the provider and the patient in terms of long-term outcomes as well. So I, I have a hard time tr finding reasons to not spend $250 when we spend tens of thousands of dollars on these patients. I think the only thing I'm going to need help on is the evaluation of VUSs. I'm always looking for guidance, and I've soaked up every single talk I can about functional testing, and that's because a lot of that does seem to be research-based. But again, fortunate also is the CS listserv and other resources where you just post a VUS, and there's just like a whole community to support you, which I think is absolutely wonderful, and that's what makes our specialty fantastic. Agreed. I thought this was interesting because I've usually just used infection as a marker for looking at patients with immune deficiency, but obviously I need to broaden my sphere of my spectrum and look for the syndromic features as well. So, Well, let's continue the conversation about testing. Stan, looks like we have some additional data on the use of exanotric oxide. Yes. And so this is a report that was reviewed in Allergy Watch by Dr. Oppenheimer. And this was a study that was published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine in October 2021. And the title of it, the study was Baseline Pheno Exhaled Nitric Oxide as a Prognostic Biomarker for Subsequent Severe Asthma Exacerbations in Patients with Uncontrolled Moderate to Severe Asthma Receiving Placebo in the Liberty Asthma Quest Study and this is a post hoc analysis. So the Liberty Asthma Quest study was the one that was published in the New England Journal in June of 18 on dupilumab, looking at the efficacy and safety of dupilumab in moderate to severe uncontrolled asthma and probably was responsible for helping it to get 
uh, approved by the FDA. So the authors that did this post hoc analysis using the data from 620 patients that were enrolled in this study who had moderate to severe asthma, but they were assigned to the placebo arm of this Liberty Asthma Quest trial. And on enrollment, these patients had uncontrolled asthma in spite of using inhaled steroids with controller therapy, plus at least one exacerbation in the previous year. And the other thing that's interesting about the patients they included here, they all had available data on baseline pheno, also eosinophils and total IgE. And the annualized severe exacerbation rate was assessed for the patients at different levels of pheno. So they did it also, they broke down the bloody eosinophils and also the exacerbation history. And we'll go through that in just a minute. So the three levels were elevated pheno at 50 parts per billion or higher. And what they found in those groups, the relative risk for increased exacerbation was 1.54 compared to the pheno, the group who had pheno less than 25 parts per billion. And then the group that had the pheno in the interim, the, in the between area, the 25 to 50 parts per billion, that relative risk was 1.33. So it was almost like a graded type prediction response. So the risk was further increased in the patients who had the pheno of 25 or higher plus elevated EOs, so over 150 cells. So in those patients that had two or more, basically the risk factor was 3.6. So the two biomarkers together did predict an even higher risk rate for exacerbations of uncontrolled asthma in these moderate to severe patients. They did look at other associations such as smoking, age of onset of asthma, FEV1, post-bronchodilator, and also level of asthma control. And they excluded those from the analysis here. So these findings were independent of that. And so basically in this placebo-treated group of moderate to severe uncontrolled asthma patients, the pheno is an independent predictor of severe exacerbations over that subsequent year. The exhaled nitric oxide provided additional prognostic information beyond blood eosinophil count and the history of severe exacerbations. And the findings really add that to previous evidence that the assessment of the pheno level might be clinically useful approach in assessing the future risk of severe exacerbations and help to inform us, maybe make some probable good treatment decisions in these patients who have the high TH2 asthma. And when you look at what's happening with the pheno in the last couple of years, really, the American Thoracic Society have come out with some position statements and really have added the use of pheno as a diagnostic tool to help determine certain treatment recommendations. So they don't recommend pheno particularly as a diagnostic tool for making the diagnosis of asthma, but the American Thoracic Society does state in their last guidance that was published in November of 21 that clinicians should consider recommendations to measure pheno in patients with asthma in whom treatment is being considered based on the current level of evidence. So we use it in our practice mainly as a tool to help monitor patients and also adjust therapy. But I think that anytime we see additional data on a potential diagnostic tool, then I think it's helpful. And so I thought it was very clever that the this report based on this, even though post hoc analysis, most people say, it, but this, I thought it was very well done. 
I mean, it makes sense. You know, if someone's having high levels of T2 inflammation, you know, is definitely going to be the biomarker that's going to, one of the biomarkers going to capture that. Though what was interesting to me is that that ATS guideline that came out, I, when I first thought about this, I sometimes think that, well, another reason we used to use Eno is just to see are they taking their medicine. And interesting, I read that ATS guideline and it didn't seem to suggest that it was really great at detecting the non-adherence, which I originally thought of in the past. So I guess we really should be taking it seriously as not a treatment adherent effect, but more of really, you know, again, we have to think of everything we can to get inflammation under control to protect exacerbations. So I think it's something in our toolbox to make sure that we are, again, monitoring with all the things we can to protect our patients. Yeah, I think you hit on it, Jerry. I think it's another tool. It's an imperfect tool. And I was an early adopter of Pheno, both in the research lab as well as in the clinic. And I used to use it a lot. And I used it on every patient thinking that it was helping. But I think the more I use it, it's kind of like a lot of things in medicine and in life, it's a pendulum, kind of the pendulum has swung back and I found myself not using it as much. And now I feel like the pendulum is more in the middle, that it it's a really helpful tool in some patients. I don't think every asthmatic needs to have phenos at every visit, but certainly any uncontrolled asthmatic or as you say, Stan, anyone in whom you like to direct future therapy, particularly biologic therapy. So I think it is a really helpful tool. The economics of it are also a moving target because it's not cheap and it probably should be cheaper, but I think it's useful. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the big pushbacks is that it is expensive and uh, a lot of the third-party carriers don't cover it. I think some of these guidelines like the ATS may be helpful in trying to encourage them to do that. But I think your point about determining which biologic you might want to use, obviously, we all know that like with uh, dupilumab, the pheno goes down. With the IL-5 inhibitors, the eosinophils are down. So it really does change and your biomarkers are going to change depending upon what sort of treatment you have. Okay. Well, I think I'll just wrap it up with the last article. So this was published in JAMA Dermatology. The title of the article is The Importance of Supplemental Patch Testing Beyond a Screening Series for Patients with Dermatitis, the North American Contact Dermatitis Group Experience. And I partially chose this article in honor of Luz Financier, the former past president of the college, who I've worked with in the past on talks, and we did a practice improvement module together for CME. And one of her gifts is encouraging the practice of allergy immunology to meet the needs of our patient population. And as you can imagine, if they have type 1 allergy, they definitely have delayed hypersensitivity like contact dermatitis. And so they have needs to figure out what is their triggers and the allergies and absolutely can expand their practice and meet the needs of that population. And so she's championed contact dermatitis and patch testing. And allergists have variability in how they've implemented this. I think a very common dipping your toe into the water strategy has been a screening panel called the True Test that many of us have been familiar with. And this article starts off with talking about screening series. And What's the evidence for screening series in identifying the allergen when someone comes in with a possible allergic contact dermatitis? Well, you know, you'd be surprised. 
if you just take that screening panel that's commonly used by allergists, we're getting positivity rates about 26 to 32%, meaning there could be 70% of the allergens not being detected in these populations. Now, there are more comprehensive panels that are used as well. So again, I told you that this is sponsored by the North American Contact Dermatitis Group. So they have their own North American panel. Now that panel has 65 allergens versus the 23 or 28, depending on which true test you use. But again, they have 65 allergens and their data goes up to 43 to 65%. So interestingly, even if you're using that screening panel, I mean, you're maxing out at 65% of the allergens being detected. So really, I think the question comes up like, if we're going to do detection of allergens not in these screening panels, what are they? What should we be suspecting? And who are the populations at risk? So I think that that's what they tried to investigate in this study. So this is looking at their database. So again, they were able to do analysis of a large number of patients. We're talking 43,417 patch test results. And they were able to identify 21.9% who had reactions to a supplemental allergen. And a quarter of those patients who had a supplemental positive did not have a positive on the screening panel. So that's a significant percentage of patients who were not only had additional allergens, but even a good chunk of those who didn't even, the screening panel would completely have missed. So what do we know about these patients? Well, men were less likely to have a supplemental positive. Supplemental positive were less likely if you had atopic dermatitis. Patients who had positive supplemental testing were more likely to have face or hand rash, though some did have generalized. That was about 17.3. And about half of the supplemental positives that were not included in the screening panel were personal care products. So we're talking cosmetics, hair care, health aids, and, and so on. Now, there were other categories that were significant. So for example, textiles was 18.1%. And occupational exposures was 16.9%. And actually, that was a significant number as well. So certain occupations like mechanics, people who work on assembly lines, cosmetologists or hairdressers, occupational exposures also were a source of these supplemental positives that were not detected on the screening test. And so when they analyzed this data, this group suggested that we should consider supplemental testing beyond the screening panels we normally use in our office and taking a very good history and identifying certain risk groups, whether it's certain occupations or certain patterns, or again, knowing how important personal care products are, getting a good history of what personal care products they're using and including that when you put the patch on. And you know, you can get different custom wells or methods for the patient to bring in their own products. Or again, you can also get screening products like there's a textile or dye series you can purchase. You can ask them about workplace exposures, potentially get the MSDS forms for those exposures and see what's in them. And again, test for those, depending on the workplace exposures. And making sure we're being as comprehensive as possible 
So we get our patients better, help them avoid their triggers, and give them insight on their own disease. So I think it was very enlightening. I, I do think screening panels absolutely seem to detect a large percentage. But again, we have to really think broadly and not just rely simple on panel testing. Really, the history and, again, being very inquisitive is going to help us be as thorough as possible for our patients. That's a good point. And it's interesting. I was just noticing that Shyam Josie, who's the associate editor of Allergy Watch, who made the comment here to reduce the risk of missing a significant allergen on patch testing, all clinicians should offer some form of supplemental testing to personal or work type products. And I think that this study really uh, drives that message home that we probably, you know, I've quite frankly, I've sort of relied more on the true test than anything else. And I think that we need to, I'm going to need to expand my testing panel a little bit more now. I think it's, this is a really important paper, but it brings up some problems as well. When allergists expand into doing more tests, they have to be able to deal with the positives. And I, my experience, having worked in a multidisciplinary clinic that included dermatologists and allergists, is that the most important person in that clinic was the nurse that educated the patients because they were not very good. I mean, it's not what we do day to day looking at cosmetics and the 30 or 50 constituents of a cosmetic, but the nurses that do this all the time can be trained both to help determine what the relevant history is, but also train more importantly in what to do with the information. It takes a lot of time and a lot of expertise to do these right. Yes. And I, I do think that I heavily rely on that American Contact Dermatitis Society, that camp, that, that they have that contact allergen management program. I, I think you need a membership, but it is really good information. You can put anything into there and they have really good patient information, patient safe lists. They have an app and that sort of thing. Again, you need a membership to get the patient access to it. But again, it's an invaluable resource because you're absolutely right. Once you have the information, you still have to give patients the ability to avoid these things because a lot of them are very ubiquitous and very sometimes opaque in which products have these specific substances. Okay. Well, that's the end of our podcast. Again, if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. And of course, we absolutely want to hear your feedback or if you have any corrections or suggestions, the email to contact us is allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. Don't forget to go to our website to claim CME. Join the conversation on Doc Matter. And we'll hear from you next time. Have a wonderful day, everybody. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professional services, or methods that may be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee has nothing to disclose. Dr. Montanaro has done research with AstraZeneca, Regeneron, Theravance, and Teva, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for Takeda and has done research for AI Immune, DBV, BioChrist, and Novartis.